Well, hi everybody, Julie Panessi here. Uh, wow, what a week, what what a few months, what a couple of years it's been. Um, but we keep talking, we keep at it, and that is that is so crucial. My goodness, what do we lose if we if we lose that? I'm here today with someone I've come to know uh, over the last few weeks, few months, I guess. Um, and I'm just delighted to be sitting down and chatting today with Dr. Barry Engelhart. And, and Barry is um, many things. He is a retired physician now. He graduated from U of T Medical School and spent 35 years um, in family practice. He also has a master's uh, in bioethics from the Joint Center of Bioethics at the University of Toronto. And he has written a couple of books, one quite intriguingly called Musings of a Medical Dinosaur. And so I'm, I'm just very interested, Barry, to get your take on some of the things that have been going on lately. I don't know how you are feeling, but I have spent the last few days myself just feeling almost like I'm in a state of, of kind of uh, emotional and moral paralysis, just being in kind of a state of disbelief or shock and even sort of profound sadness. How, how are you feeling these days? Well, I, I, I've had someone mentioned to me the COVID coaster. And it's like this emotional roller coaster you're on, you know, and you can wake up some days feeling down the dumps and then something happens that makes you feel optimistic for humanity again. You kept it real up and then it can go down again. And it's it's been a two year and now into our third year of the COVID coaster. And uh, you know, I was feeling pretty low after Monday night's vote. I feel better today. I'm not sure why, but uh, I mean, uh, I think that I was down in Ottawa on Friday and Saturday of last week. Mm -hmm. Monday, so just Friday, before. Just before. And Friday yeah. was so upbeat and, uh, you know, it's really good speakers and music and everyone's very upbeat and lots of hugs and whatever. And then the police kind of moved in, but it was very low key, you know. Um, so it was a fun day. And then shortly after I left that's when the woman got trampled at the very spot I had been standing on an hour earlier on Saturday on, on Friday on Friday. Friday and then and I, I felt I felt so good coming home and then when I saw that I was horrified because I literally had been in that spot an hour earlier and thought my goodness they really ramped things up well, something there. shifted quite quickly did it it wasn't a grad because when I was there which was what three or four weeks ago now it was very much as you describe, it was positive, it was peaceful. Um, people were dancing and hugging and chatting. The police were very, they were present, but they were, um, I think they ranged from aloof to being kind of friendly. I mean, it was a very peaceful uh, situation. And then sometime on Friday, things changed. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, your experience as much as mine where the police were great and, and so many people, myself included, that we got up on the stage, we did a great shout out and thanked the police. Uh, I mean, some days were aloof and I understand that they're busy and checking things out, but so often they were very friendly, very helpful, uh, you know, very good people. And we really genuinely appreciated them being there because none of us wanted bad stuff to happen. And we really appreciated their presence. I must say, I hardly ever saw them busy because there really wasn't anything bad going on, and which kind of makes it tougher for them because they're standing around at 20 below. That, that It's a long shift if you're doing that for, for eight hours, you know. Yeah. yeah. So it was a very pleasant experience. And then Friday um, got much more serious. They didn't move as aggressively as Saturday, but certainly the police who I had seen earlier the previous three weeks looked like they're all Ottawa police or RCMP or OPP. And um, they didn't look threatening to me. They, they looked dressed in typical police uniforms. But on Friday and Saturday, they were dressed in much more official garb, almost looking mm -hmm. military-like, uh, dark black sometimes. Instead of having the kind of bluish surgical masks on, they had the black type masks on. And a lot of the, the, uh, the police that I saw there which was different, did not say police anywhere in their uniform that I could see, or certainly what police they were. There were no names, there were no ID numbers, no badge numbers. And rather than having that kind of pleasant repartee with them, it was much more serious, much more intense. Um, and so Saturday in particular, I went down and uh, it, it was a great feeling of sadness because at that point, most of the trucks had been pulled out the people, the truckers who were there were packing up 
Um, the stage had been taken, had been abandoned. Uh, there was no music, there was no dancing, there was no hugging. It was very intense. They had the, um, the mounted police there on horseback. Mm -hmm. And then they had the, well, what's called a riot truck or the riot, whatever it is. It almost looks like a tank there with the speakers blaring that, that you would be arrested, etc. It just had a very different and uh, sad feel. And to be honest, I'm not used to that kind of thing. Uh, and it was it was intimidating. It was uh, it made you feel unsettled. You know, I remember when I was about eight years old, I went to South America with my parents and uh, I'd never I think I'd never been out of the country before that. And um, I remember us touring around Venezuela and seeing just that sort of thing. But that was in South America. Yeah. And it, it is very haunting uh, to see some of these images coming out of Ottawa, the police looking like what you describe. So it, there's no indication of who they were even. Is that right? The, well, the, the police I, that were in a more intense sort of uniform? We don't know if they're Ottawa police or... Yeah, maybe they were part of a ride squad. I don't know. But certainly their, their demeanor, the way they would stand around in groups, the way it was obvious they were Ottawa police service or... RCMP or what have you was much more obvious for the three or three and a half weeks prior and that tone changed considerably on the Friday and Saturday I noticed and that that was like okay this isn't the same anymore you know that this felt very different. So there's either a shift in the mentality and the approach of existing law enforcement or there had been a shift in, in personnel a shift in terms of who was there representing. Well, yeah. yeah. It was um, and how, like, logistically, how did it work? Uh, because Wellington Street, which is at the base of Parliament Hill, right, was full for blocks and blocks with trucks and people. And the footage I saw on Saturday, I think, had the police, Saturday or Sunday, had the police had pushed the line back about two blocks off Wellington Street. Do you know how that happened? How did they accomplish that? I don't know exactly. It must have happened mm -hmm. Friday night. I left probably around 4.30 or so. Mm -hmm. And the police had not really moved up much from the far end of Wellington where it becomes Rito. Mm -hmm. And they'd not moved up very much at all. So I thought, well, this um, nothing's really changing. Everyone's keeping their cool. So uh, I've been there since 9.30 in the morning. So I was getting cold and tired. So we had to go home. And, uh, and then when I got home, then this horse incident, and then I imagine sometime between that and the next morning is when they pushed back several blocks to basically eliminate the stage as being a place where people could, could, could gather. And uh, you could see it from as far as I could get, I could see the stage area a couple of blocks away, but I don't know exactly how that came about. Have you been down since? No, I haven't gone down since then. Uh, I came home probably Saturday mid-afternoon, haven't been down since. At this point, I feel like there's not much going on, and mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't see the point for me going down there at this point. There's no one to support. And uh, I, I mean, I've seen a few clips of people going downtown, and it looks like the, um, the constabulary are very clear about keeping a perimeter. And mm -hmm. it's, it's not it's not sounding like a pleasant place to be unless you have to be because you live there, for example. What a market shift from a week or so ago. Right. Mm -hmm. um, do you think there's been a I don't know how much in, in touch you are with some of the you know people who were supporters or the truckers themselves. But do you think there's been a marked uh, shift in morale? Has this affected the morale and the sort of the mental energy and stamina of the convoy the protesters i've been amazed at the resilience of, of the truckers mm -hmm. and their supporters i mean if you think about it this is a lot of people organizing fairly quickly mm -hmm. uh, from all over the country and the logistics behind getting that many people together and keeping it so peaceful all the time is mind-boggling that's a tremendous amount of dedication and cooperation Mm -hmm. uh, I'm always reminded of Harry S. Truman's comment, you can accomplish anything, provided it doesn't matter who gets the credit. And my, <laughs> overwhelming, my overwhelming sense down there was there wasn't much ego going on. It was very loving, very kind, very supportive. And I think that was the strength of, of the truckers is that it was done really from a position of love and peace and, and a genuine concern for democracy. 
Mm -hmm. and, and so I, I think that what happened, I think they still have the same resolve, but I think there was a sense of um, surprise perhaps that it suddenly escalated in the way that it did, mm -hmm. likely based on the, uh, the threat of the Emergency Measures Act being passed. And I think- An uncertainty about what that will mean. Well, exactly. And just a, a sense that, uh, is this really happening? You know, and so people kind of stunned, perhaps. I know why it was stunned. I suspect a number of people were. I mean, there were a lot of things that were done during the, the rally that made life more difficult uh, for, for everyone down there. You know, the difficulty putting uh, porta potties downtown, et cetera. Everyone kind of got around that okay. Mm -hmm. um, but then things changed uh, at one point there. And then, uh, and I think that just kind of caught people off guard. They weren't expecting that in, in Canada. That's the thing, isn't it? I think one of the things, I mean, I've been sort of trying to engage in self-reflection and understand why do I feel so profoundly sad and, and stunned recently over the last few days? And, and I think part of it is just that if this can happen, if an emergencies act can be invoked in the absence of ob an obvious state of emergency, and if that can have the kinds of uh, far-reaching powers and limitations of civil liberties that, that we're seeing, then what really is the foundation of our country? What, what laws are there that protect us? Well, particularly- I mean, like yeah. our constitution, what force does that have? Well, particularly when, you know, there really wasn't much attempt made by any, very, very few politicians to just enter into respectful dialogue. Right. I mean, the truckers were willing to dialogue. A lot of us who spoke down there wanted to dialogue. And, and you know, there was that, that press conference that uh, Byron and, and Brian Bridal and, and, uh, and Paul Alexander had people could have shown up and had a respectful dialogue and yet it didn't occur. And I think that's what shocked people. We went from kind of zero to a hundred in, in a matter of a very short period of time with no interest whatsoever by the overwhelming majority of parliamentarians to simply sit down and dialogue. It just, it, it's, it was just so stunning that you'd think that the one thing that, that would define democracy more than anything else would be respectful dialogue. And yet it wasn't there. And, it, and there were lots of people, uh, passionate people, yes, but intelligent, you know, well-educated people um, who were just itching to dialogue. Mm -hmm. And it could have happened. And talk and, about the science that we keep hearing about. You know? And we've seen that, you know, when the concern, and I understand the concern about the, the uh, horn blasting, when that was discussed with them by, I think it was the mayor of Ottawa, that all uh, de-effervesced very quickly. So mm -hmm. it, there was evidence, all kinds of evidence that mm -hmm. just respectful dialogue goes a long way. And if you believe in democracy, you're supposed to believe that because that's the whole principle for democracy. Isn't it just it? seems to me so powerfully symbolic, not just symbolic, but also um, important, I think, uh, for the leader of a country to be willing to leave his or her post and go and meet with the people, whatever that means, whether it's a matter of leading them in battle or going to their homes or inviting them into their chambers, whatever it is. Um, but to, to, to break that barrier between the office and, and the, the people who have elected you to that office is so crucial, such a demonstration of, of, of good faith. And when you see a kind of adamant um, reluctance, I don't know if you have adamant reluctance, but you know, resistance to doing that, it raises a lot of questions, doesn't it, about, about where we're at and what people are thinking about democracy and the purpose of democracy and how it works and whether uh, you know, government should be really representative. And of course now, we seem to be having a big debate in the country about whether whether or not that's what democracy should look like. Because a lot of people, um, and I kind of hate to say on the other side, but a lot of people, I mean, I think on Twitter, it was trending over the last couple of days, Justin Trudeau was right, um, because they feel protected by the fact 
that he invoked the Emergencies Act. And then a lot of people feel terrified that he invoked the Emergencies Act. So you wonder, how did we get to this place in Canada where we can feel so fundamentally different about things like fear and safety and terror? I feel like um, we should talk about COVID itself for a minute because You've, you've spent a long, you've, you've practiced medicine for a long time. You've probably seen uh, viruses and, and um, you know, uh, pandemic level viruses sweep through the population. How in your mind has our collective response to this compared to, to that in the past, whether we're talking about fl- swine flu or, or typical seasonal flus? Well, it's, it's, it's been so surprising to me that so many people I know, friends, family, et cetera, forget that family doctors and emergency room doctors kind of front line. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, so we see everything that walks in the door. And of course, a huge percentage of the people I saw over the years were people who presented with uh, infectious, potentially contagious diseases. Well, if I had let, let myself give in to the fear and terror, I, I couldn't go to work every day. Uh, I, you know, I willingly saw people who had potentially or actually did have infectious diseases, many of which were contagious, but that's, that's my job. I mean, how do I help sick people if I'm not prepared to be around them? You know, now that doesn't mean we're foolish. We wash our hands, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But in, you know, I, I started seeing patients in 1981. So it was 38 years of actual clinical contact with patients during that 38 years. I think I had five days off sick in 38 years. That's one day every seven years. And two of those days were when I'm pretty sure I picked up H1N1 because I was, I felt really lousy. It took a lot of <laughs> work. And, and I'm just thinking, you know, when did we get this incredible paranoia about infectious diseases? Well, and, and is that true among healthcare providers as well? So the level of fear now? Well, I don't know. I, I mean, I, again, you know, was it 2007, 2008 was H1N1. Mm-hmm. And um, I got really sick with it. In fact, at the end of a week, I thought to myself, if I don't start feeling better soon, I better see somebody because maybe this isn't just the flu. Maybe this is leukemia or something. I felt that bad. And then the next day or the day after, I felt much, much better. And I realized, okay, I was just being paranoid. But, you know, virus has been around for a lot longer than we have been around. They're not disappearing anytime soon. And I think we're going to have to develop a wiser um, relationship with them than we have now. Because we're not going to get rid of viruses. And we have to find ways to be able to cope with that. And I've been so worried, for example, along the way that we've been using all these chemicals in our hands and washing everything down and eliminating a lot of the good bugs on our skin and not thinking, well, is there a downside to this? Because yeah, it's great. You may be wiping away COVID if it's on your hands, but what else are you wiping away in the meantime? And we do that umpteen times per day for two years are we going to see some kind of drawback to that at some point? And I think it's a pretty legitimate question. Well, I was going to ask you, so, so you said, you know, viruses aren't going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, why is that? Um, because my sense from talking to people is that there's quite a, quite a good deal of confidence in our ability um, to achieve immunity through pharmaceutical means that, um, that we can either eradicate viruses well, that we can eradicate viruses, then I guess the question is about, well, how do we think we can accomplish that? But with the powerful pharmaceutical company narrative right now, I get the sense many people think, well, I think we can just vaccinate our way either out of all existing viral threats, or maybe we can vaccinate our way to making ourselves so immune to all of them that we won't face a pandemic like this again. Well, it was so crazy. Well, it's so funny to me because for many years before the pandemic, one of the big concerns we all had was the overuse of antibiotics and how Mm -hmm. there was going to develop resistance in bacteria. And and I spent a lot of time in practice trying to convince people that they don't need antibiotics for a lot of things that are viral or even if it's bacterial, lots of things you can fight off without necessarily taking antibiotics. And yet when this hit, it's, it's, we're not saying to ourselves, gee, is, is there any equivalency here between overuse of antibiotics and bacterial resistance to them and overuse of other measures that we may use to prevent or to treat 
viruses, which maybe are not as serious as we might think. Now, that's not to say there aren't some very serious viruses out there, as there are serious bacteria. But mm -hmm. if we are not careful, could we get ourselves in a bit of a pickle by uh, trying to get rid of everything and in the process um, shooting ourselves in the foot by uh, affecting our immune system, the symbiosis between all the bugs that we have on our skin and inside of our bodies all the time, are mm -hmm. we going to affect that symbiosis at some point? Because, you know, we have more bacteria in our gut than we have cells in our body. And, and we cannot live without them. They help us digest and absorb our food. This is not a, an unhealthy relationship. It's a very important and necessary symbiotic relationship. So are you sympathetic to the concern that um, a sequence of boosters for something like COVID affects our overall immunity, depletes our overall immunity? Well, I don't know if it necessarily depletes our immunity, but certainly one of the questions I have would be, can we really get ahead of them? I mean, mm -hmm. it's one thing if you have a virus that has shown itself not to be capable of mutating very well. Um, but, you know, RNA viruses in particular tend to mutate a lot and easily. And so mm -hmm. can we ever get ahead of the game? I'm not so sure it's that the vaccines will adversely affect us, though that's a possibility. I'm much more worried about are we trying to prevent the unpreventable or are we trying to do it the wrong way? Can we really get ahead of mutations of, of particularly RNA viruses? Mm -hmm protect ourselves enough or are we better to use other mechanisms to be able to do that and, and let's be honest i mean no matter what the organism or the pandemic you can usually identify ahead of time those people at greater risk those people multiple medical troubles comorbidities those who are elderly and frail nursing homes fortunately it wasn't children this time which should have hit us like a two by four because you know my first worry was oh my god what if the children are as high risk at the young end of the spectrum as the elderly are? Or what if pregnant women particularly were higher risk? Wouldn't that be tragic? Mm -hmm. Thank goodness that wasn't the case. We should have all breathed a huge sigh of relief when the people who were at risk were easily identifiable and were always going to be and have always been the people with high risk. And I feel like I read at one point that one of the markers of the way of identifying a pandemic is that it, it doesn't discriminate among the age, that, that you need to have a disproportionate number of young. And I, I believe this was the case during the smallpox ep epidemic, unless I've misunderstood that. But not only did we not see that really at any point over the last two years, but now um, there are fewer deaths in, um, I mean, it seems like it's the, the virus is following the natural trajectory mm -hmm. that viruses typically um, follow with or without a vaccination strategy. Well, it's so fascinating that you know, the last three or four weeks, we literally have had hundreds of thousands of people in downtown Ottawa from all over the country, mm -hmm. not wearing masks, hugging, hugging complete <laughs> strangers, I have yet to hear of the Ottawa hospitals being overwhelmed. So it's like, so we're not hearing about increase in deaths, ICU admissions, hospital be, being overwhelmed. Now, maybe they are, we haven't heard about it, but that would surprise me because we've heard about every single case ever since it started. So I, I find it hard to imagine that, that the Ottawa hospitals are being overwhelmed right now if, if uh, and then we're not hearing what that's possible. And that's not why the Emergencies Act was invoked. As exactly. I so it, right? if there's anything that should show us that this virus is decreasing in virulence, mm -hmm. uh, just the evidence from Ottawa should tell us, look, hundreds of thousands of people outdoors, close con contact with each other, no mask, hugging, whatever, over the course of three weeks or four weeks, at 20 below, 20 below it's out there. If that isn't making and under stress because people are not living in the comfort of their own homes and exactly. they've been so if maybe not eating as well. Yeah. So if the hospital's not being overwhelmed, isn't there a message that we're over the worst? Which is so ironic that the most serious measures being taken yet during the pandemic are occurring mm -hmm. at a time when we've proven overwhelmingly 
this virus is mutating into a more benign course, which is typically what happens. And and when provinces are lifting mandates, and you can't help but wonder. I mean, I think Kieran Moore was maybe the most recent to say it's time for the time for the mandates to go. Uh, I mean, you would think that a person in his position, looking rationally at the situation in Ottawa, would say, well, not only for a political reasons, because there's so much unrest among the people about the imposition of mandates, right? Uh, but also immunologically for the reasons that you mentioned. We, we don't need these mandates anymore because people clearly can gather in large numbers in not ideal hygienic circumstances uh, and, and not have a massive outbreak to the best mm. of our knowledge, right? Well, you have to have some trust in Canadians. I don't know too many Canadians who want to get sick. I don't know too many Canadians who want to die. So it's not like you're dealing with a foolish population who is going to be reckless they're not going to be. I mean, if they're sick, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I picked up COVID or not, I got a bit of a cold. Well, I, I just didn't go downtown for several days until I was feeling better. Well, that's what Canadians do. I mean, we're not stupid people. So we know yeah. how to wash our hands. We know when to stay home. We know how to take care of ourselves. We know what vitamin C and zinc and things. We know that we need to protect the most vulnerable. The more vulnerable you are, the more careful you have to be. There's a lot of common sense stuff that Canadians have done for decades and will continue to do that, that will help protect us a lot. We don't necessarily need to be treated like, like mindless sheep with mandates that are excessive. So interesting you say that, that we, none of us want to get sick, none of us want to die. And yet, one thing I do find interesting that I noticed over the last, you know, especially uh, several months, but maybe, maybe more like two years is that I wonder if there is a certain comfort level, though, to living in this state of fear. Because when people are presented with evidence to show that um, COVID doesn't pose as significant a risk to them as maybe we thought, or it's not as much of a risk to their children as maybe as maybe we thought, or there are new um, pharmaceuticals and nutraceuticals being developed that actually are of some benefit. There seems to be quite a resistance to those pieces of good news. So it's interesting. Do you find that interesting as a physician, well, it, it, you know, you see people in a state of sickness a lot and, and what that does to your mental state. And well, that's the thing. I mean, it, you bring up so many points there. I mean, I've been so concerned at, at how damaging this perennial chronic anxiety is going to be for us. I don't think it helps any aspect of your health, least of all your immune system. So generating, maintaining that level of anxiety isn't itself harmful. So right. doing that alone is not a good thing. Um, but I agree, you know, that one of my struggles in practice, especially towards the last few years, was that I think people had unduly high expectations for the medical profession, that we could fix a lot more things than we can with a lot less risk than they think and with a lot more guarantees. And I think that maybe that's part of the um, technical, technologically driven society we have where you know, if your cell phone gets old or broken or whatever, you can replace it. But biological things are far more complex than non-biological things. Hmm. And so our understanding and ability to control not a biological uh, complexities is far more difficult than non-biological ones. And so there's this mm -hmm. expectation that you can fix my computer uh, a certain way or you can replace it well the same thing will be true when i have a I don't know, bad hip or something and there's a lot of things in medicine that we're not nearly as good at just because the biological realm is far more complex i mean part of that i always give the examples of it's great to use analogies in medicine to explain things so people will you know say well your arteries in your heart are kind of like uh, the PVC piping of your sink, and we're just going to use like some Drano to go down there. When, well, I, I'm not saying that there is <laughs> of helpfulness to that, but you have to remember that the PVC piping is not living, and the effluent that goes down that PVC pipe is not living. They don't interact with each other, mm. but the, the arteries and veins you have in your body are living things that interact with the blood that goes through, which is also living in a very complex way that we only know a little bit about. And so we often tend to oversimplify a lot of biological processes using physical analogies that fall well short of, of really capturing 
the complexity of, of biological uh, processes. So do you think there's a sense in which we're just, because we have this heavy reliance on, on science and technology to, um, to, to fix everything, to be perfect, um, are we just disappointed then when we um, come to realize that maybe it isn't, or we need to explain away any of the messiness or the imperfection or something? Well, disappointed slash terrified, and I and I get it. I mean, I think one thing that's been clear to me during the pandemic is, you know, and this is a large part of the book I wrote, is that fear drives people a lot more than they realize. Mm-hmm. It's not to say that we're not complicated. We have also multiple psychological levels to ourselves, but the the, the background operating system of every human being is is is, is really fear based. And if that fear becomes too great, our ability to be able to control it or to be able to balance it with rational thought becomes compromised. And once that fear is is great enough and there's a fear that maybe somebody can't fix all that, that can lead to real panic, to real terror. And I think that's the one thing we've seen a lot during the pandemic is, is people's inability to control their fear long enough to just ask questions because so much what I do with people is I just say look let's just ask questions that the the nature of of medicine of all science of democracy of ethics is always about asking questions acknowledging uh, how little we know how complex the universe is very much a position of humility let's just ask more questions but if you're just terrified and you just want to be reassured that some expert somewhere some politician some public health doctor some other expert of some type has all the answers, then you can kind of rest assured that, okay, I'll be protected. And mm-hmm. so that fear will drive you to believing in kind of an omnipotence or omniscience of fellow human beings that is probably unjustifiable. But what, what is it we're ultimately afraid of, do you think? This snuck up on me, I have to admit. So you, you're talking as though it's, it's been quite clear to you for a long time that we're, we're driven by fear. And, um, you know, I'm not a physician, not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, so I haven't studied it in that way. Um, it's not been clear to me. This, this snuck up on me, this, 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 this realization of, of how how much of a driving force in people's lives it is and how blinding it can be and how much we're willing to, I would say, even make quite foolish decisions and put ourselves in harm's way in order to avoid and protect ourselves from some perceived fear. But what is it the same for all people? Well, it's interesting, you know, you mentioned that because the first 40 years of my life, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 65 in July. First 40 years of my life was, is I got myself into trouble because I just kind of assumed that everybody was curious and wanted to ask questions and knew that they didn't know that much. And, you know, even though the idea of asking questions and being unsettled by the answers was maybe scary, I just felt like I got to do That's that. That's what you do, right? And running into trouble with people who very clearly were very, very close-minded and did not want to have any of their um, assumptions about life or the universe or their place in the universe questioned. And so they really couldn't engage in just a curious inter, you know, interchange and dialogue to explore other possible ways of looking at the universe. And so I, I came to realize that a lot of that's because mm-hmm. people are afraid. New ideas scare people. Uh, I mean, all change, we're we're programmed to be fearful of change because change involves loss and loss involves potential pain. So even if we're leaving something that's great to, or so that's not so great to something that could really be great, it's still kind of scary because there's still that risk of the unknown. You know, we still tend to be a little wary of the unknown because we just don't know what's going to happen. And we're afraid of dying. We're afraid of being left disabled we're afraid of our lives being meaningless and pointless so there's an awful lot of fears that we have and so we much prefer sometimes to just stay stuck in our perception of the universe and our worldview and where we sit in it than be challenging ourselves and it it wasn't until i was in my 40s before i realized that a lot of people uh it's a no-fly zone to question their perception worldview assumptions etc it's just 
And, and it's because I think because it's fear and you can tell it's fear because they react with a very negative emotion. They, I don't want to hear about it. You yeah. know, talk to the hand kind of thing. And, and you can see the emotion, the tension in their face and in their expression. And so at, after a while, I, I realized there's only a, a select number of people in my life with whom I can really have very open, uh, you know, and curious, inquisitive discussions because for a lot of people, they're not really prepared to reevaluate uh, their worldview, their their priorities, their values. It's interesting when you, um, I asked you that in part because I used to ask my students this a lot, you know, what are you ultimately afraid of? And the immediate answer would be, I'm afraid of dying. But when you push them on that and you ask more questions about it, it becomes clear that they aren't really so afraid of dying. They're afraid of other things that we might loosely group as being related to the unknown, as you describe, and or uh, social ostracization. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if these things are, are connected to each other, right? So when you talk about uh, people having a very sort of, ooh, don't, I, don't, don't drag me into that conversation or I'm not willing to go there um, yes. because, it, because it destabilizes your belief system. It, is that really about worrying that what you believe about the world might not be true or is it that if their belief system is destabilized, now they don't belong to the group they thought they belong? Well, we, yeah, we're an incredibly tribal species. And, and you Who know, knew? I had no idea. This well, is complete revelation to me over the last well, couple of years. <laughs> yeah, so we're extremely tribal. So first of all, a third of our brain is directed towards communication. No other creature on the planet has that level of communication. That makes us intensely tribal. I just finished reading a book by Terence Deacon, um, the symbolic species, talking about the evolution of speech and, and language. Fascinating book. But it, it's very clear that we are a very, very uh, social species. I mean, who else raises their young to the late teens, early 20s? Who else, what other species on the planet, maintains contact with children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren? No other species does that. But the other flip side of it, of course, is too, is that we are sentient enough and of the highest level of consciousness, where we realize that the universe is a pretty terrifying place, and we cannot possibly navigate life uh, fully and healthy on our own. We just know that more than any other species, because we're so aware and self-aware of our limitations and how, how scary the universe is. I mean, we understand that asteroids can hit the planet. My dog doesn't do that. He's not thinking about. It. So we have. But how are other people going to help us if it does? <laughs> you know? I, but you know, some people would say that the most important thing we should be worried about is actually an asteroid hitting the planet, and maybe true. But the point is that <laughs> that at the end of the day, I, we are an extremely tribal species, and almost nothing is more painful than being alone. Being a pariah is a terrible, terrible feeling. I remember reading a book about a, a journalist who was captured, I can't remember what war it was in, and he was tortured for a while by his captors. But he said, what was worse was when they put him into solitary, solitary confinement and ignored him. Because at least when he was being tortured, he had physical contact and he mattered. But when they just stuck him in a room and didn't matter, and they didn't matter to him, that was worse. So our, our, our social isolation is extremely painful for us. And very, this is the cancel culture where this is the, this is like our cancel culture does to people what, um, social, what, what isolation, solitary isolation does to people and, and breaks us ultimately. And I think that, um, we, we might think that arguing with someone is the worst thing you could do because you could spew hateful things. You could say disrespectful derogatory things, but to engage with someone like that, to argue with them, like it requires acknowledging that they have enough value that it's worth exerting your mental energy on them. And as you make the interesting point, even to torture someone acknowledges that they matter in some sense, that they are, you know, a strategic pawn, they have information, but something about their life matters. But yeah, today we are just seeing conversations shut down and people shut out. Christmas was so painful for so many people. You know, I just heard like so many stories about people who um, were, were, were not invited or disinvited to family gatherings or just shut out or dropped out of, you know, book clubs or Facebook groups or 
people didn't call them anymore or whatever it is, but a kind of silencing, you know, and ultimately more, sorry, go ahead. Well, well, they say, you know, the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. Mm -hmm. Because if you're loved or hated, at least just still matter to someone. They're willing to give you the time of day, even if it's not very pleasant. But when you really don't care anymore, then you don't matter. So indifference is the opposite of love and hate. You know, love and hate are not the opposite. It's indifference is the opposite of that. And that's very painful for us. And, and we have a pandemic of that, right? Yes. I mean, um, Peter McCullough said a while ago, we're in two pandemics. We have the COVID situation and then we have a pandemic of fear. And you and I have talked a lot about that, but I think also maybe we have a tripartite sort of uh, pandemic because we also have this pandem- pandemic of um, not knowing how to communicate with each other anymore mm-hmm. and where the default is um, shutting the door and, and, and closing off conversation and deplatforming people trying, right? People like Joe Rogan. And, and even in our House of Commons, we see um, someone challenges our prime minister and he, after a while, just walks out. And well, that's the thing, you know, I mean, I remember hearing a great expression uh, the scariest thing in the universe is a closed mind. Because when your mind is closed, then you're able to engage what they refer to as the killing certainties. You are so sure of what you know and what you think you know that you're prepared to kill for it. And, and you'll preserve the, the integrity of that system. Right? You'll do the most heinous things because rather than opening your mind to the possibility you might be wrong, the idea of killing someone else or torturing someone else is actually more acceptable to you than the possibility that you could be wrong. So, you know, the most dangerous thing in the universe is a closed mind. And I think that's the part that uh, on my bad days, when I've been at the low ebb of the, of the COVID coaster, it's been when I realized, my goodness, uh, so many people have their minds completely closed. And that is to me so terrifying because what do you do? what's the next step it's just you're banished without any opportunity to just have respectful dialogue to at least agree to disagree and we've lost that i think as jordan peterson said we've lost the ability for for dialogue for public discourse and part of that's because you know sadly in in, in our democracy for example we tend to be very debate oriented there's x or there's anti-x binary very binary and that and that's the other part about this is is you know when you look at people who have so much fear you realize a lot of that's because of binary thinking that are extra anti-x and the truth is in the universe most things tend to lie along a spectrum mm-hmm. and when you're not prepared to look and shift from the extreme edge of x to something between x and anti-x then there's a problem. And, and if you don't acknowledge the, the existence of spectra out there, then you have a very limited and basically fear and anger um, based picture of the universe. And that's how you behave. And that that's, that's very so, dangerous. That's so interesting, right? So the idea that we, I mean, why are we binary thinkers? Why are we, why do we get ourselves caught into this system of, of polarities of opposites? Um, and, and what is the degree to which having our mind kind of shut off to other people's stories and diversities of opinions and diversities of input, um, how does that get us into a position where we are such binary thinkers? But then once we're there, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now we're caught into this cycle of fear, but because we don't have uh, the skills that allow us to look more at at the spectrum of experiences we can't work our way out of that fear because we feel like well either we're in a complete state of fear and terror or everything is perfect and la-di-da and lovely right um and so there's no way to step away or step out of that fear gradually or incrementally because we don't we don't think that way in virtue of what's got us to that point, right? I mean, that's so interesting. And that's why, you know, it took me until I was in my 40s before I realized how many people are actually very, very binary in their thinking. Mm-hmm. They can't budge them because it's, and, you know, binary thinking goes back since the beginning of time. Every living creature has had to live in a very hostile universe that doesn't care about it in particular. So it has to protect mm-hmm. itself. And so, it, we've tended to be very much fight or flight based. 
So mm -hmm. why do we run and hide or we put our dukes up and get the adrenaline going and fight? So binary thinking, I, I call it binary reacting because it's not actually thinking. That binary reaction is as primitive a self-defense mechanism as there is. And it's deeply ingrained, deep in our brain stems, very, very powerful, nearly instantaneous, and, and it can drive us. And, and if we're not careful, we can fall into that binary thinking or binary reacting trap. But if, we're, if we always maintain a, a certain level of control of that fear, and if we have nurtured a sense of curiosity about the universe and humility about how complex the universe is, it gives us permission then to be able to be open to other ideas, to open our minds up Mm -hmm. to engage in dialogue as opposed to debate, to explore the full spectrum as opposed to the binary kind of X anti X, which leaves you just with uh, you know, anger and fear to kind of run off. Of. And that openness gives you more self-reliance, doesn't it? Because if you feel like, well, I don't need to be quite so afraid of this because I know I'm the kind of thinker who can identify possible solutions and work through those different options and try to figure out which one is best and which is next best and what the consequences are and all of that. So when you, um, it's kind of a sad state to, it's a very sad state to be in because you don't feel like you can trust your own judgment very much, but I think the more open you are, or maybe being open is a reflection of having more confidence in your own mental abilities, right? Cause you feel like, well, I can always, I can always pivot. I can, I can always adjust to a new circumstance. I can always brainstorm and be creative and think of a new way uh, to make things better. You know? Yeah, the sad thing, I guess, is that if we look at our educational system, does it nurture that kind of thinking? It, it tends not to. It, 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 I mean, an awful lot of our age-old institutions are based on the premise that there is knowledge and our you know, purpose here in the and whether it's a, a religion or education or whatever it is, our purpose is simply give you the truth. This is it. It's, and that's it's, what you're paying for. It's unchanged, etc. So just memorize it. But there's not really an encouragement to ask questions. Mm -hmm. There's not an encouragement to think outside the box. I mean, we make the box ourselves, and then we're not encouraged to think outside of it. If we if we could inculcate in people. Um, a sense of, okay, we're all born with a certain level of insecurity because we know how puny we are rest, compared to the rest of the universe, but that's okay. If you are inquisitive, if you're curious, if you're willing to control your fear long enough and think outside the box, you'll find solutions to problems because we can't, and that's what parenting is all about. No parent can ever give a child all the answers for all the scenarios they're ever going to face in their lives, right? But what they can do is give them some a self-confidence, balanced with humility, um, and, and some principles to use, and a sense of, of, of curiosity, of inquisitiveness, of taking risks, but sensible risks. You don't want to be just crazy about your risk-taking, but not so risk-averse that you're not willing to try anything. You know? And mm -hmm. if we could just incorporate that into, into our thinking that, hey, you know what? I, I'm an intelligent, sentient being, and if I, if I know what I know and I know what I don't know, then I can stay out of trouble for the most part and I can learn more. And if I continue to question, I'll find better and better answers, which of course will lead to more questions, which is what science is all about. You ask questions and then you find answers, but then that leads to more questions. But that's okay because that's how we learn and get to a higher level. So if we can teach people that, look, it's okay to be afraid, but that doesn't mean or preclude um, asking questions, being inventive, thinking outside the box, relying on other people to help you, learning how to be critically analytical, that kind of thing. If we can do that better, then I think we can help people to get out of that non-spectral binary thinking and not kind of just function totally off of fear, but on a certain level of confidence that says, yes, there are risks here, but if I'm careful and I use my social skills to depend on other people, to find better answers, I bet things will turn out okay. 
it's been, you know, as we've seen a rise in the reliance on science and technology, we have, I think, not co not coincidentally seen a decline in uh, the value of, of liberal arts and a liberal arts education. Mm -hmm. And, and you think, well, you know, is there a harm to that? Is there a cost to that? And having worked in academia for a long time, I mean, that's certainly a question and a debate that, um, I mean, I think the universities are still struggling with. I mean, you hear students say, or, or parents will say, well, if you're getting a philosophy degree or an art history degree, well, well, what good is that? What's that for? So there's definitely those kinds of questions. And then when it comes to budgeting and when they're talking about what kind of new professor to hire, how many new courses to offer, there's a question about, well, what monetary value do the liberal arts uh, mm -hmm. have? But I mean, I think one thing that the liberal arts does is it, it they they tell a story of a different people you know in in whether it's literature poetry uh, art history um creative writing classical studies all of those disciplines take you outside of your own self-centered context and expose you to the stories and the lives of other people, whether they're people from the past or people just in other parts of the world. And so if we lose the liberal arts and we lose, I mean, even when you're outside of education, if you stop reading about the stories of other people, if you start looking at art, stop looking at art, if you stop um, thinking in those ways that extend you and your thinking to others, um, it's not surprising that you would lose empathy and compassion and understanding and open-mindedness, you know? Um, I think we, I think we're going to have to have another conversation sometime because we didn't even get to chat about sort of the bioethics of what's going on now. And I think we certainly should, but it's well, so beautiful yeah. to kind of end on this note about, about openness and, and creative thinking. Um, but I, and I want to thank you so much for chatting. I mean, there's just a wealth of, of ideas and information that are so important. And I just hope people who are watching, I mean, maybe take some of these ideas and these questions and take them to the dinner table tonight or ask your spouse, well, what do you think about this? You know, as a way to, to get going, Barry, do you have any last thoughts or last well, as I was listening to you, I was thinking, you know, I mean, I was uh, 47 when I did my master's and I had three busy kids, two of them were teenagers and I had a busy practice, but I just, I had to go off and do the master's degree in bioethics. And it was such a liberating thing to do, to be able to think about things differently, meet different people, be involved in, in, in uh, the, the more liberal arts and asking those difficult uh, philosophical questions was so exciting and mm. you know I haven't had a chance to use the ethics as much as I would have liked to but I can tell you in terms of my own personal growth I don't regret it for a minute even though it was a lot of work and it was a very difficult a very busy time of my life mm. it was so liberating and it was so so good for me in my own personal evolution and and certainly teaches you so much about yourself about open-mindedness about creativity about other perspectives and worldview. And I always love the expression in ethics, there is no view from nowhere. And, and the, the pithy statements that really make you realize you, you, we all have biases, but can you recognize your biases? Can you be more open to things? And it's certainly ethics is one of those disciplines where it forces you to be humble and really explore things in a way you've never explored them before. And I, I, I've, uh, I'd love for us at some point to talk more about bioethics because it it's been a very important part of my own personal evolution. Well, I think on that note, we'll take this as part one of a two, at least, <laughs> part conversation. And, and when we pick up next, we will start with um, a chat about the, the bioethics of, of what's going on and maybe the, the, the dialogue about the current narrative. Barry, thank you so much for this well, conversation. Well, thanks so much, Jill. Really appreciate it and really enjoyed it. And we'll keep in touch.